Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast. Uh, thank you to everyone who listened to our episode last week, our interview with Mr. College Curling here in the USA, uh, Gordon McLean. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, go back uh, and give that one a listen. He gives a lot of insight into the differences between college curling here in the U.S. and in other countries and what the future holds for college curling in the U.S. and how it kind of fits into the sport, the game uh, growing here in the U.S. and even uh, in in other countries. So I'll bring in my co-host there in Southampton, England now. Uh, Jonathan, how are you doing today? I'm excuse me. I'm getting over the plague. Nice. I'm. I've allergies are crushing me. So I think we both sound about the same for for this episode. This one will certainly stick out if people are listening to multiple ones in a row. Yeah. So my my voice won't be great. Uh, I was I was in bed yesterday till about four o'clock, uh, fighting off some kind of nasty virus. And today I feel a bit better, but uh, a lot of a lot of drugs in my system. Well, you picked a, I guess you picked a good weekend to be stuck at home recovering from illness. So we'll, you know, we've, we've gotten into grassroots curling the last couple of weeks. This episode is going to be very heavily geared towards the competitive side of curling. We're going to talk about the Scotties and the Briar. Uh, so this weekend we've had the Briar going on. So have you been able to, uh, fire up the old uh, VPN and uh, log into TSN to watch some curling this weekend? Yeah, I actually last night got the perfect setup worked out. I had, uh, yeah, I got the HDMI cable connected to the TV, so I got it up on the big screen TV, and then put the sound through the Bluetooth to my Bose speaker, and oh, it was brilliant. Anyway, I was pretty proud of the setup, got to say. So yeah, been watching, and it's, been, it's worked out well. Like Basically, the afternoon draws our evening draws here. So I've basically been able to watch the, the afternoon draw all, all week long. So it's been pleasant. Yeah. Te- technology has really improved the curling watching uh, these last few years. Like and the, the games are streamed on ESPN three here in the States and with, um, with Apple TV and Roku, it's just right there on the ESPN app that's on those two. So it's real easy. You know, I don't even, I, I used to have to connect, connect the laptop to the TV back before I got um, Roku. So, you know, that's made it 10 times easier here as well. Uh, I guess we'll get to the briar here in a second, but, you know, we had the Scotties. We haven't really talked about that since it uh, came to an end. Uh, I guess we need to start kind of something that pertains to both the Scotties and the Briar and what the narrative has been this year about the format uh, for the two tournaments. Uh, Last year, the narrative was that, you know, this format is terrible. Uh, You should go back to the full round robin. And then this year, watching the games on TSN, uh, narrative has been actually the format is good (laughs) 
Yeah, I think that's kind of natural. I do think that in anything, when there's a big change in an institution, uh, people don't like it. Even if the change makes sense, there's always going to be a lot of whining. And uh, I think just because it was unfamiliar last year, a lot of people didn't like it. But um, like personally, I really like it. I think I think we can kind of romanticize the old format. But really, after the initial weekend, like the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday used to be a grind. It was just games after games after games. There were there were a lot of pointless like games against teams that were going to kind of finish bottom of the table no matter what. Um, at least here, it's kind of like you get the wild card game now on Friday, which is a must-win game. So that's kind of exciting. Then you get that rush of the initial weekend, and then you know maybe Monday's a little bit of a lull. But then Tuesday, Wednesday, it's basically do or die for a lot of the teams, right? So already start of the week, you've got like must-win games, and then the championship pool games; those are must-win games. Also, every single one of those is an elimination game. So, um. It's a pretty good format now, I think. And they've gotten rid of the bronze medal games, so that's that's also a plus. And the playoff games are all Saturday, Sunday. So Russ kind of compared it to golf during the Scotty's broadcast. He said, you know, you have the first couple rounds and then there's a cut, and then after then, like everything is must see TV. But you have teams scrambling. Uh they're the last couple of draws to try and make that championship pool. So each of those games uh, means something. And then all four of those championship pool draws, as you said, just has, you know, teams that are playing for their lives. Yeah. And then I think the other thing that's interesting is those early round robin games matter, right? Like, so if we pick on the McEwen team, like they dropped the game to UConn, they shouldn't have in the, the, the initial round. Right. And that like sunk them. Like that was the game that killed their week, right? I mean, at, at that point, even though they kind of lost other games against um, other teams, right? Uh, like the, the loss against kind of the elite teams, it was that loss to UConn that took them out of the playoff picture. Yeah. And kind of under the old format, you know, a lot of these kind of elite teams could come in and maybe like have one slip up against uh, a lower ranked team and still kind of make it through to the playoffs. But actually now, no, dropping a game early because those losses carry forward and you know your last four are all going to be meat grinders against top teams from the other pool, uh, you can't afford to, to fall asleep against a low tier, low, uh, low ranked team. So I actually think it makes it for like a far more intense format too. Yeah, and the the Game of Stones guys said that another reason that this format worked this year is because the teams were better last year in a you know post post Olympic Scotties and Briar the team I guess the quality of the teams weren't as good as we saw this year. Um, the only argument that I've seen about this um, about this format is whether or not you should take your record with you to the championship pool or if only your record against teams going to the championship pool should go with you um, once you advance. And I think absolutely you should include all the games because it's like you said with the McEwen team, it's not really the wins that matter, it's the losses. And why would you reward that team by taking away a loss to UConn just because they lost to um, a team that isn't advancing to the championship pool? Yeah, exactly. I think that that's kind of the point, right? Is that uh, having the, the quote unquote bad losses is what's going to do you in for making the final four. And, 
you know, you can still squeak in in that fourth place spot, but if you do it on like a four and three record or a three and four record, even, um, you're not going to get out of that pool, right? So you've really got to you've really got to go five and two out of the seat out of the initial pool in order to have like a a, a good shot at uh, getting to the playoffs, right? And so carrying those losses forward, I think, makes it kind of really interesting that a it gives something for the what I call the bubble teams to shoot for, right? So a team like the Kirk Myers team or whatever, they, they, for them to make the championship pool, they feel like it's a good week, right? Um, and a team like Marty Marty Kretz team that just missed out, like for them, that's like it's a failure, but it's like the, it's basically one or two losses, the, the, the dividing line between being a good week or a bad week, but it makes every single game matter, I think, that much more. Yeah, and we we saw that with the Briar this weekend, as you said. We, you know, we you went into the final weekend. You had four teams that had you know two teams with no losses, two teams with one loss, and then four teams with three losses. In like, I mean, yeah, every single one of the draws in the championship pool matter, but we kind of had a good idea of who the final four teams were going to be, and the the order that they went into. Uh, into Thursday and Friday is the order that we wound up with for the page one, two and the page three, four games. Yeah. I think that, although I think that, <clears throat> I think that wasn't the case in the Scotties, right? No, the Scotties, there was a lot more action. Um, like the PEI team came out top of the pool and then kind of hit the championship pool and, and kind of hit a bump. And same with, I, I, yeah, same with Scheidegger, right? And it's it's interesting. I think that you know we, we never want to look at just one iteration of the event and then kind of base all your opinions on it. I actually think that um, over the long term, we're going to find that that championship pool round is going to be pretty pretty intense. It just so happened this year there were four clear teams that were kind of a cut above the rest of the field and that the next teams kind of down the, the pecking order couldn't quite kind of hold up with those teams but um you know in a different year that could have been very different results right you know like if cotter came out a little bit hotter or if you know i, I think if myers and mcdonald hadn't been briar rookies they would have been a bit more dangerous too uh and so i can certainly kind of imagine a scenario like next year where there's all kinds of chaos going on in the championship pool as opposed to kind of simply carrying on from form based off what came out of the seeding pools i think the biggest negative of the format to me is, you know, those, those next, those tier two teams, those bubble teams, as you called them, uh, they now get fewer games on this high quality ice. And we talked about that being a problem, you know, especially for the teams from, uh, from the Maritimes in getting access to high quality ice and high quality stones. And now once they get to the Briar and the Scotties, they get even fewer games unless they make that championship pool. Yeah, I mean, I get a little bit, although I think, to be honest, like a seven-game event is still a pretty intense event. Like, it's not it's not to be sniffed at. I think, uh, you know, having played in a lot of different bond spiels in my life, a seven an event where you are guaranteed seven games is still pretty special, especially to be playing in an arena and everything else. I think the, the issues about developing elite curling in Quebec, Atlantic Canada, and the North are kind of a different set of issues, right? And so <clears throat> the way to deal with that is perhaps to kind of think of ways to get elite, kind of elite quality ice, elite stones into events that 
that teams in those regions can compete in in some way, shape, or form. So maybe it's about thinking about some kind of, you know, cash payroll event that that serves kind of the non-slam teams in Atlantic Canada or some kind of similar development for teams kind of up in the north rather than kind of guaranteeing, you know, 10, 11, 12 games for, for the kind of lower tier teams. So I think really the challenge for Curling Canada is how can you build up um, more competitive teams rather than kind of simply making it easier. All right. So do you want to get into what we saw at the Scotties? Yeah. I mean, it was a little while ago, but uh, there's still a fair bit to talk, uh, talk about. So yeah. yeah, we'll just go through, I guess, team by team, just quick hitters in what you saw from those teams and what you think, uh, what do you think the future holds for them? Uh, your champions, which we'll talk about later when we preview the world women's uh, Chelsea Carey's team winds up winning the Scott, winning the Scotties beating Rachel Holman. I know a uh, bit of an upset just because of how they won it. Huge comeback. I think they said it was the biggest comeback in a Scotties final ever, uh, but stealing their way uh, to a Scotties championship by forcing Rachel home into some tough draws. And, you know, another one of the things that we heard about both in the Scotties and the Briar was that that center slide path got fudgy. And they said that over and over and over again, um, on the TSN broadcasts. Uh, but two of Rachel Homan's draws come up short and we see Chelsea, Chelsea Carey steal her way to a second Scotty's title. Yeah. I mean, I think well, a couple of things stuck out to me. So first of all, uh, how Chelsea Carey's developed as a skip since her last Scotty's win is like, super impressive to me. Like, um, you know, the, the, the old kind of running joke in her first win was, you know, just trust it. You got it. There's a lot of kind of like robotic sports psychology going in there. And I remember that team was super obsessed with like split, like getting 15 different split times and kind of like really obsessed with like the getting the exact number right. And she'd always be kind of asking for confirmation for what split time she threw. And this year she was just not even talking split time. She was just, you know, not even asking for that kind of positive reinforcement from her her front end right before she's throwing. She's a lot more chill and actually her touch was like way more on. Like she was definitely had draw weight, uh, you know, in the back of her pocket all week. And, you know, I think, <clears throat> I think that bodes well for worlds that really a lot of those, those habits that she got away with in her first Scotty's run kind of caught up with her at worlds. But I think this new team seems to work well with her, like a far better team chemistry. And, I think she's right up there uh, if you want to talk about like elite elite curlers now, right? In terms of like like for so long it's been kind of home and Jones, home and Jones, home and Jones. But like like Chelsea Carey's won two of the last four Scotties. Um, she made the the final in the Royal of the Rings. Like she should not be discounted as an elite skip, and she's only in her early thirties with two Scotties wins. That's you know that puts her kind of on pace with kind of where J where Jen Jones was early in her career too. So. She's got a chance to become one of the great, great curlers now. I think she's been kind of a bit discounted in the past as not quite being at the Holman Jones tier, but perhaps this was the kind of statement win that that kind of puts her in that kind of conversation. That and this, as you said, this team I think fits her a lot better. And you know, we've talked about building teams and using kind of sociology when when building teams, and that, um, you know successful teams kind of fit into that leader, lieutenant, 
Joker nerd category that um, that they talk about in sociology, and I think this team has that uh, to a T. Uh, and you saw that after they won, uh, Rochelle Rochelle Brown's reaction was awesome. Um, you just see the the joy that she had to be um, to be a Scotty's champion and and moving on to the worlds. It's also crazy. This team came together in really four months because. Rochelle Brown was on maternity leave until December. I think their first tournament together was the Canada Cup. And before that, um, I think they had Dana Ferguson in the house as the vice. So this team had, you know, a big shakeup, even though, you know, Dana Ferguson and Rochelle Brown have played together for forever. But, you know, this team has only been a team for really four months. So their 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 ceiling is a lot higher even than this, I think. Yeah, for sure. I think they've they've got a, a big future. Uh, you know, I, I suspect we're going to see a bit of sh- uh, moving and shuffling around uh, during this off season. There's already been a bit, a little bit of talk on uh, on Twitter and social media about some teams making changes, but I think this is one of the teams that that they'll be sticking it, with it out throughout, throughout the quad for sure. And they've got the makings of a really good team, like a team that will definitely be there come uh, come trials in a couple of years' time. Rachel Holman's team comes in second. Uh, they made it to the final through the page three, four game. They beat Northern Ontario in the three, four, and then beat Saskatchewan in the semifinal to get to that final. It seemed like they kind of ran out of gas. And that was something that they were saying on the TSN broadcast that especially Joanne Courtney. And as we've said before, um, both Rachel Holman and Joanne Courtney are expecting, but they said on the TSN broadcast that especially Joanne Courtney seemed to be running out of gas there at the end, at the end of the tournament, long tournament and long weekend of having to come out of the three, four game. I'm interested to see how much we see of this team the rest of the year. I know we'll see them next year. At least I assume they'll stay together. I mean, they were lights out this whole year and came up just short in the Scotty's final. So I don't think that that should have an impact on whether or not this team stays together. But I'm interested to see how much we see of them the rest of the year. They, I imagine they'll be at the players, but I'm not sure we'll see them much, um, especially going to China in May. Have, are they, have they withdrawn from that officially or no? They haven't withdrawn from that officially, but they also I, – I don't know. I, me personally, I don't see it happening because you have Rachel due in June and Joanne due in July. And with that event happening in, I think it's mid-May or late May. Yeah, it's mid middle of May. I don't know. That's, that's way too close to be going all the way to Beijing. And, you know, you can get, you can replace one player. Like they can bring in Kriviazic like they did during the Scotties to fill in one spot, but I don't see them going and playing in tournaments if they have to replace two players. And one of the reasons for that is something that Chill Bernard said during, during the stone and straw podcast, there's a really good interview with her on that podcast. And she talks about her experience as the fifth for team Homan at the Olympics. And one of the reasons that they brought in Cheryl Bernard as the fifth was they didn't want to bring in someone who is on tour that they're playing against because there's a lot of things that that team does that are kind of state secrets to that team. So they didn't want to bring in someone who they're going to have to play against to be their fifth uh, 
there at the Olympics. So I kind of like me personally, just reading those tea leaves and I have no inside knowledge of this team at all, but I personally don't think we'll see them in Beijing. And I, I don't know. I'd be surprised if we see them even at the champions cup. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, they don't need to play in any of those events at all. It's, um, you know, they don't need the money. So I guess it's a question of what what else they might kind of think they need to accomplish this year, or you know, runner up at Scotties isn't the the exactly the worst end of the year. So uh, maybe they just shut it down early uh, and rest up and come back out ready uh, to fire all cylinders next season. And I'll say this about the Holman team, you know we. I think that some things get said about that team online that you would never hear said about Brad Jacobs or Brad Gushu. You know, that everyone kind of gets onto Rachel for, you know, her demeanor when she's playing. But when a guy's doing it, he's just called competitive. And I hope that. Rachel and Joanne starting families like they are this summer kind of humanizes that team or those those players in the eyes of the people who say those kind of things about this team that, you know, they're not robots who curl. They're, you know, just like us and, you know, should be viewed in those eye, through those eyes. Yeah, I mean, I'll be curious to see how it like changes things. But there's a little bit of that with JJ, I think, as well. That uh, she was kind of seen as the the cutthroat skip, women's mm-hmm. skip, when she was kind of dominating early two thousands. And I think, yeah, the view of her, the view of her really changed. Yeah, especially especially all the kerfuffle around Kathy Overton Clapham, which like, like Kevin Martin wouldn't think twice about cutting a good plan. Did he cut Randy Furby? Right? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and and never heard crap about it, but you know JJ decides to cut a Kathy O for Caitlin Laws, and it was like you know front page news in Winnipeg, and you know being slammed for it. So that there's definitely a double standard in terms of how the public and the media. I, I th- I'd actually say it's more the curling fans. There's a really annoying, really annoying habit. I think that that it's not enough for, for whatever reason it is with curling fans. It's not enough for the curler to be a good player. It's not even enough for them to just be a good sportsman. It's like, there's like something else they want them to do. And I, I've seen it like in a, a lot of places. Like I remember, I don't know, I'm not going to mention the name of the U S curler, but there was a pretty kind of prominent elite curler and they were at St. Paul when I was there and someone went up to try to chat to them, but it was before a cash spiel game. And the person's like, I'm, I'm busy right now. And that person was like, irate. And I'm like, they're in their pregame routine. You don't have the right to just go up and talk to a player. Like, it's like, would you be upset if you went up to Tiger Woods and he's like on the, the practice tee right before like the Masters and he's basically go away? Like, there's a weird, there's a weird attitude among some curling fans where they just feel like they're entitled to be in that curler space and they expect the curler to, you know, not just be a good player on ice and do the kind of right things, but also do some kind of weird emotional labor for them too, that for whatever reason, the home team seems to get a lot of, and I think it's kind of, it's pretty unfair. You know, we're, we're spoiled. You can enter any number of events as, you know, just a horrible player like me and wind up playing against someone who has been to the Olympics. So we're, I don't know, we're, we're spoiled and it's a sport that, that 
is great, but also spoils you. And like you said, you can ex- start to expect things out of players that, you know, you wouldn't expect from any other sport. Yeah, I think the approachability is great, but I think that curling fans also, A, especially if they're around kind of a, an elite curler at an event, have to realize they're there to do business, they're there to do work, and maybe they will sign autographs at the appropriate time, or maybe they're able to chat with you at the appropriate time, but they've also got work to do, and they're also human beings too. Like uh, When I was at last year's World Men's, uh, I remember Mark and I were kind of like walking down the parkway, like the parkade after the event, uh, maybe about an hour, hour and a half after, and the banquet was going on for all the teams. And the Gushu team was like there, they're all dressed up. And I was actually impressed. Like there was a bunch of curling fans kind of caught them in the hallway and they sat there and did like a whole ton of photos. But you see the look on their face. They just lost the world championship. And the last thing they wanted to do was like hang out with a bunch of curling fans, but they were you know definitely kind of willing and able to do it. But there was also to me a little bit of uncomfortableness about how some of the fans were kind of like, no, you've got to do this for us, like whatever, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. like you're not entitled to, you're not really entitled to anything. Like you're entitled, if you buy a ticket, you're entitled to watch the event and whatever, but I don't think you have to expect uh, the player to do, you know, much more than that. And I don't get why, you know, with Holman especially, I feel like it's not enough that she's an amazing shot maker. They actually do a lot of work kind of off season, you know, they put on their camps. They do all mm-hmm. kinds of outreach in the community. I've been at a WCF camp with uh, with Ali Kreviazek for a week, and she was fantastic. Like they, they are fantastic people, but it's like I don't. I'm not, I'm not sure for some people what more you want out of them. It's like I've heard one person say, "Well, she never smiles when she makes a shot," and it, I'm like, well, "That's because she's intense and kind of she's not going to let up until the game's over." That's her. It's her game face, right? It's just like. <laughs> I, I never get what what's going to be enough for those kinds of fans out there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you you talked about Jennifer Jones uh, at this Scotty's. She sets the record for wins by a skip. However, fails to make the playoffs. Um, do you think we'll see Jennifer Jones in the playoffs at a Scotty's again? Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's like an that absurd. Is, like, really? That is. Like, I, I my 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 view is this is that basically it's a it's a new it's a new team it kind of changed the format a bit I think losing Jill Officer uh, is not to be underestimated right like if if you're a skip you want to be able to give your stones to a front end who you trust absolutely and if you don't have a hundred percent confidence that your sweepers are going to judge it properly and manage the stone that can get in your head. And so it's even though she still got done, uh, you know, it's it's with Jocelyn Peterman. It's the first year there with that kind of new team up. So I think that's probably the big issue. But my my basic read is that, you know, it's it's Janet. She's got Caitlin Law is probably the best like thrower, like pure thrower in the women's game right now. At third, she's still got a fantastic lead in Dawn. Jocelyn Peterman's are you know already won a Scotty. She's a fantastic thrower too. It'll probably take them a year to gel, but I would not. You know, discount JJ. Um, she's you know got a fantastic touch game, fantastic strategist. She's got the kind of game that that kind of ages well on the women's side. She's definitely going to be there through this quad, and then it's really up to her whether she wants to hang it up or not. I think basically what she's sticking around for now is um, you know to become the first the first curler to win uh, two gold medals in the same event. 
right? And you know, obviously for Caitlin, it'd be three gold medals. But that's kind of probably what her motivation is: is to be the first time, first double gold medalist in women's curling. She's got a decent shot at that. And then probably at the end of the next quad, she'll probably turn the keys to the franchise over to Caitlin, and Caitlin will grab somebody, and and they'll kind of go from there. Uh, I don't see the team changing that much. To get to the playoffs at the Scotties, first she has to get to the Scotties, and Manitoba becomes even more of a bloodbath than we saw this year uh, for next season. Yeah, it'll be a bloodbath for sure, right? Uh, there's no doubt about that, but I don't think I don't think Einerson intimidates her, right? I don't think uh, Flory intimidates her. Uh, I'm not sure who else. I saw. I saw some some motions on Twitter that Michelle Englott may be coming out of retirement. Yeah. I saw Darcy Robertson's kind of shaking up a new team. So there's so there's definitely going to be a really deep field in kind of women's curling in Manitoba. Uh, but I like none of those teams intimidate her. There, every one of those teams is is a like J, JJ is in the heads of all the skips of all those other teams. None like JJ does not like think for a second at night about you know any of those teams, probably only Homan's the one who's kind of in her head, maybe Ch- maybe Chelsea Carey, but like, she's not like, I, I fully expect JJ to roll through Manitoba next year. That's fair. Uh, third place team this year was a rookie skip from Saskatchewan, Robin Silvernagel, uh, impressive debut made the one, two game, but then lost both of her playoff games. Uh, the main thing that they said, and I agreed with what they said on the, on the broadcast was, you know, she couldn't park it after she made mistakes. And there was, you know, there were times where they had the mics on and you could hear her talking about calls from three shots earlier or two or three shots earlier that, you know, stuck with her and obviously affected the shots that, that she made with skip stones that kind of led to those two defeats. Yeah. I mean, that's a big thing, right? That's, that's, uh, this kind of basic sports psychology. So yeah, learning how to get over a mistake and learning how to refocus on whatever you're doing next, uh, is a really important skill. Uh, I'm not sure if they work with a sports psychologist yet, but, um, they probably will, and that's probably one of the things the sports psychologists will emphasize. So, uh, it's also I think good. There's a there's a big step up when you get to the playoffs, right? And so to put on a good run and make the playoffs for a first year team is a real accomplishment, and they got really far. But there's still that kind of like those little things you have to learn, kind of in a playoff run. So it's hard for a rookie team to to win it all the first year. So to make playoffs, make semifinals your first year is a really impressive feat, I'd say. So they'll, they'll be kind of a force to, to be reckoned with, I imagine, over the course of this quad. And I fully expect them back at the Scotties again next year too. Uh, another rookie skip that impressed a lot of people out of British Columbia, Sarah Work. Um, you know, she kind of jokingly said that, you know, they're – poutine eating beer chugging rock chuckers but then followed that up by saying well you know we've been walking we've been knocking on the door and this year they they broke it down and got to the scotties and did really well the other thing that was interesting about this team was you know they didn't throw peel very very often all of their takeouts were what they called comfy weight which was really about 11 seconds hog to hog but they threw they threw that same weight for about all of their takeouts which was mentioned yet, you know, that's probably a smart thing to do. If you're throwing the same weight with all of your takeouts, it's easier to ice for it. It's easier to judge when you're sweeping. Um, and sweeping can save you if it looks like you're not going to make it. The other uh, the other thing that was funny was they had 
they had comfy, easy, comfy, and comfy, comfy when they were sitting there talking about the shot in the hack, which just killed me every time. <laughs> Mainly because comfy is just a funny word. But yeah, there was, oh, that was great. So comfy is what, it's about 11 seconds. Is that their uh, 11 second hog to hog? That's what Colleen Jones said. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's a class. I mean, that was, that was the Russ Howard strategy back in the day, right? Like, like Russ is probably, well, maybe that's just my age, but um, like the, like the old, old school theory was just throw it hard, throw it straight. Right. But one of the things the Howard brothers did really well when they kind of broke onto the scene in the late eighties is they, they kind of developed a real delicate takeout weight game for exactly that reason. If you're throwing them nice and soft, you don't have to throw up much more than than what I'd call board weight uh, to get the stones out of the way, and that a lets you keep a really good feel. So you know one of the risks of kind of throwing blast weight all the time is you blast, 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 and then you got to go throw a draw. Part of it's your touch goes away. So kind of keeping nice, easy board weight that just feels like a heavy draw. And if you're kind of throwing that all week, especially on fast ice, that can kind of really keep your touch weight shots kind of in focus too. It's also a lot easier to manage. So it lets you manage it in terms of being able to sweep the stone. It kind of increases your margin of error with respect to sweeping. And it also makes it really easy for your shooter stone to stick around, especially kind of these championship stones with like the really springy bands. If you're throwing big weight, you you pretty much have to hit it right on the beak if you don't want it to roll out. So keeping it nice and soft is is a good strategy. Uh, and if everyone's kind of throwing that exact same 11-second weight, uh, that'll give you a lot of scoring opportunities over the course of the week. Uh, team wildcard this year was Casey Scheidegger. This is the second year second year in a row that Scheidegger's made the Scotties, second year in a row that she went 6-1 and one in the round robin, and second year in a row that she went 1-3 in the championship pool and just missed out on the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, I, that's, I, I wouldn't say I'm stunned by that. I think, like, in my mind, she hasn't yet taken that step into elite, like, women's curling, right? Like, she's certainly capable of going to slams. I mean, she's won a slam, but she's not She's not at that Jones home and carry level where it's, you know, if they're there at a slam or an event, you think, oh, they've got a legit shot at winning it, right? And And learning how to win games against the – the top teams is kind of uh, its own learning process or its own learning experience, if you will, right? So uh, if they can kind of take that next step, that's kind of always the big question. But one of the things I think is interesting with that championship pool is you know you're going to have to play like your last four round-robin games are going to be really tough games no matter what. And so looks like she did pretty well in her own pool, but then when facing the crossover and kind of in those must-win games, couldn't quite turn the corner. And I've heard you say before that skips kind of come into their own in early 30s. And I think that's kind of where this team is. So experience is great and they have a ton of experience now. And now the I, I think they will be able to take next step sooner rather than later. Um, but it'll be interesting to see, one, if they get back to the Scotties next year. Um, and two, if they're able to finally break through and make the playoffs. Uh, speaking of making the Scotties next year for them, uh, are they the second biggest winners from this year's Scotty? Because now uh, Chelsea Carey will not be playing in Alberta next year. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, that they'll, they'll have a, I wouldn't say a, it's not an auto birth. Alberta is never an auto birth. No, <laughs> but, uh, but, I mean, they were clearly the second strongest team in Alberta 
this year. Uh, they qualify by virtue of CTRS points to make that wild card game. So that should be a pretty good sign. There's that they'll, they may have a good shot at having two kicks to the can next year. A win Alberta or B the C, the the wild card game again. So um, yeah, I think it's you know it's 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 a good good opportunity for them to get another get another shot at getting to the Scotties and. You know, I expect that they'll also, you know, be able to kind of keep playing in the slams. Have they have they qualified for the Humpty Cup yet? Or I don't know if they've made that Champions Cup, but they'll definitely be in the Players' Championship. So, um, and I think for them, because they're not quite, like, they're not, in addition to not being quite at that kind of elite level, I don't think they spiel quite as much as the Homans and Joneses simply because they, they're not able to kind of curl full time. So maybe we kind of continue to post these results can help them get the funding they need to kind of, to, to kind of put on a full run that you need to kind of keep with that, that elite tier, so to speak. Yeah. And Casey's a teacher and she kind of talked about that, about wanting to be, wanting to be there enough for her students while trying to balance that along with playing. Uh, she's got an interview with the two girls in a game podcast. That's really interesting. Go listen to that. Um, the team that they beat in the wild card game was Carrie Anderson's team and not a great end of the year for that team. First, they lose in the Manitoba final after being up five to nothing. And then not a great wild card game for for Kerry Anderson. After this team started out red hot to begin to begin the year, uh, what happened with this team? Ah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, I mean, to be honest, it's it's a bit of a surprise. I guess I guess I was both surprised by how well they came out of the gate. And then how quickly it all fell apart. Because basically they were rolling through Manitoba and then it just fell apart in the final. And actually they had a big lead. Mm-hmm. A bit a bit like a bit like the Holman situation of the Scotties final. I had a massive lead and let it all fall apart. Uh and then yeah, Scheidegger just uh, beat them in the wild card game. Um I mean there's a couple of theories. So if you if you think back to our conversation last summer about team formation. Uh, and the performance wheel, right? There's that forming, the storming, the norming and performing kind of bit of the, the wheel, right? So the idea is teams get together, they're kind of walking on eggshells and on their best behavior and actually can kind of perform pretty well out of the gate. But then a lot of the frictions kind of pop up over time. And that's where you get to your storming stage, right? Where you, you have fights and you have it all out. And <clears throat> one possibility is they they start off so well because they're a really good team and kind of had a longer forming stage and then kind of hit the storming stage when the calendar turned. And so now they've got to kind of sit down with whoever they sit down with and, and figure out what's gone wrong. And it's, it's probably mostly team dynamic issues is my hunch, just in terms of trusting people, trusting yourself, kind of working out the team communication stuff. That's probably, um, that's probably the issues they're going to have to work on. I, I still think they're going to be a threat over the course of this cycle. And I mean, there's times this year where they've looked scary good, like even slams kind of like throwing up, you know, scoring five baggers at will. Uh, It it looks like a really ferocious team. So uh, I wouldn't say they're ready to pack it in, but they're going to have to spend some time over the summer figuring out what tweaks they need to make to get over the hump there. 
All right, and then one last note from the Scotties before we move on to the Briar. Uh, congratulations to Team None of It. Uh, get their, they get their first ever win in draw one over Quebec, and I think that was another one of those kind of feel-good stories that, that kind of lended to people turning over a new leaf on this format. Yeah, and I think that I think that's you know I I know we're gonna we're, we're gonna have all this talk about format change and residency rules and all this stuff and like one of the things that's magical about the Briar and the Scotties is that you can have these elite teams, the very best teams in Canada, playing against teams from regions that don't have the curling depth, but they still get to take their shot. And you know, for somewhere somewhere like Nunavut or the Territories or the Yukon upset over over McEwen also like anyone can beat anyone as I've said many times. And, you know, it's great to see teams from these non-traditional curling areas get a chance to win some games and put on a show. And I think that, that kind of running them out because they're not on Sportsnet every weekend playing in the slams and kind of just poo-pooing them, I think misses a lot of the magic of what these, these two tournaments have kind of done over the years. So it's great to see the win and hopefully, Hopefully the fact that none of the Yukon territories are all included full time in these two tournaments means that over time, those territories can develop competitive teams that can put on better and better showings, right? And I think, like as I've harped on like many times before, Brad Gushu and Kevin Cooey both come from regions that are normally poo-pooed as not being curling powers, right? Like before Brad Gushu got on the scene, Newfoundland was kind of like the team that would show up and if they won three games at the Briar, like that would be a good season, right? And uh, Northwest Territories, before the Cooley family kind of showed up and tried to dominate all of curling, was again kind of a, 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 a territory that would show up and maybe win one or two games. That would be kind of a really strong showing. So we, I, I don't like this kind of poo-pooing of regions. Like actually letting regions come in, get the experience, maybe one or two players in that team over time can kind of build up a stronger team around them. And so kind of making sure every region of Canada is in, uh, I think is a good and important thing for both of those tournaments. All right. So that's a good segue over to the Briar. So looking at the Briar, which just completed and we saw Kevin Cooey just dominate this whole tournament. He goes undefeated uh, and he's moving on to worlds. I mean, what can you say about this team? He, he had a few games where, you know, coming down to the final seconds because we've seen that happen with this team a lot. But it's it seems like you know when when time is winding down and he doesn't have time to talk about the shot and he just has to get in the hack and throw. You know, he's almost a hundred percent. So a couple of shots like those to, uh, as Brendan Botcher put it, to to Cooey uh, other teams and this team goes undefeated and win an, another Briar championship for Kevin Cooey. Uh, what, I mean, what, what else can you say about, about this performance? Well, I mean, f- four is a magical number that puts them in the, the Furby four, Kevin Martin, uh, kind of the, what's the name of the Saskatchewan brothers? Richardson. Richardson's. Yes. The Richardson's, right. Like that puts them in a pretty elite category as a four time winning skip. So, uh, that's not to be kind of poo-pooed at. Um, interestingly enough, he didn't show up in the top 10 all-time curlers list uh, that TSN put out yesterday, which which kind of surprised me as an interesting omission. Um, in terms of the team, I mean, great great performance for a first-year team. So, 
you know, I told you this team. I told you this team was a better fit for for Kevin Cooey. I mean, I think it, it kind of is, right? I think the it, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting question, right? Like, I mean, you can't you can't sneer at the old team. Like that was that's still won an Olympic trials, a Briar, a World Championship. So it wasn't exactly a bad team. Um, I think Kevin's personality is a bit laid back. And so if you have a lot of talkers like you had with Lang and with, uh, with Kennedy. Uh, Kennedy, that could kind of take a lot of time. I think, the, I think the other kind of funny dynamic was that because Kevin's a little bit less assertive personality wise compared to either Glenn Howard or Kevin Martin, part of me was a little bit like, Oh, they were finally allowed to express their opinions with this guy who was kind of more laid back. And so they did, whereas kind of, you know, Especially Martin. Martin would be quite happy to tell his team to f off if they were <laughs> they were giving him too much information. <laughs> and that was that was when he was mic'd, so you don't know what he was saying when he wasn't mic'd, kind of thing. So, um, like it was, it's an interesting team dynamic. Like uh, I think, like you know, Colton Flash and, and BJ Newfeld are interestingly a lot more deferential to Kevin, which kind of I think works pretty well. And uh, we've kind of seen Ben Hebert step up and be the the vocal guy on this team now. Well, I mean, I don't. I think Ben's I mean, always no. been the vocal guy on any team. Yes. <laughs> All right, that's that's fair. I think I think on the on the Kevin Martin team is the vocal guy, but I think basically, I mean, the one thing that's missing is I always loved the Kennedy Hebert dynamic. It was like two brothers fighting, <laughs> like, and basically Kennedy's job, you could tell, was to tell Ben to shut up. <laughs> kind of on both the Martin and the Cooey team, and I think like I actually think neither Flash nor Newfeld kind of has that that uh, yeah. personality type. Um, no, I mean it's a good team. Like Kevin Kevin Cooey, I think spends a lot of time thinking about how to put a team together. He's not uh, like every single team I've seen him with has always made a lot of sense. It's always been a kind of a very well thoughtfully blended team. That each player's there for specific reasons. Uh, has a clear role and does it well. So uh, maybe some people were surprised by this team. Maybe, maybe F- Colton Flash was kind of the one unknown, but I'm sure that Kevin Cooey kind of had scouted him pretty well before before bringing him into the squad. But you know, obviously grabbing BJ Newfeld, who'd who'd been on one of the been a third on one of the more dominant teams in the last quad, the team that finished runner up in the trials, isn't exactly you know going too deep down the the draft board, so to speak. So it was a pretty good pickup there too. Brendan Botcher got in as team wildcard, second consecutive, very impressive briar for Brendan Botcher. But as you've been touting, the the decade of Botcher is not quite here, but it seems like it's a question of when, not if, he will get his first briar. Yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, the, there's no doubt they're going to win it uh, eventually, um, he's probably the most impressive, uh, like twenty-something skip in Canadian curling since Brad Gushu hit the scene, right back in the early two thousands. So, and it actually, di- it actually did take Gushu quite a while, right? He lost the two thousand seven Briar final and then didn't didn't get another serious kick at the can until twenty seventeen. But then uh, he's been de- definitely the Gushu team's been one of the more dominant ones the last couple of years, and so I fully expect. Botcher to be here for the next 
next 10 to 15 years for sure. And I fully expect Boucher to win a Briar eventually, maybe next year. Uh, it's probably at this point kind of hurts. A, last year's probably they were, maybe they weren't just happy to be in the Briar final, but uh, like they could probably walk away from that. Uh, you know, heads held high. I think this year it's a this year probably may hurt a little bit more knowing that they've had two chances and haven't been able to close the deal yet. The thing that that stands out to me was there was a point. Oh, I I I'd completely forgotten which game it was, but you had the the team he was playing calls a timeout and they're stressing over what shot to play, and Botcher literally just sits down on the bumper, like, "Yeah, I'm just <laughs> waiting for you to decide how I'm beating you." <laughs> that's so. That's that kind of sparked a little uh, chatter between us and the Game of Stones guys on <laughs> on Twitter, and. Uh, I guess there's two schools of thought. So school of thought number one is, yeah, I don't care. And that's, that's kind of his attitude. And definitely Brendan Botcher is a sitter downer. Uh, <laughs> I remember being told off by my skip when I first entered men's. Uh, we used to have these little boards in between the sheets and I'd sit down. I remember sitting down in some league game and he was like, I never want to see you sit down again during a game. <laughs> and his attitude was, if you sat down, it showed weakness. Like you never sit down during a game was his attitude, right? And then if you've seen the the losers documentary on Netflix about Pat Ryan, have you seen that yet, Ryan? Yeah, yeah. That and that was what that was what came to mind was Furby talking about that same thing you just said. Yeah, so he picked up this young Landy Furby on his team and he had a list of rules, including like no sex, no wives, no drinking, no smoking. Anyway, but his one rule is never sit down during a game, no sitting during a game, right? And so it's it's kind of – in one sense, it's a bit silly, but it's kind of like one of these, you know, maybe, maybe I'm turning into grumpy old man like uh, kids these days, but <laughs> the sitting is like – the sitting for me is a non-starter. So I, I know Pat Ryan, if he was the coach, would be kind of on his case for sitting down there, but – it was also like the way he sat, like he wasn't sitting on a bench, which was at, you know, chair level. Like he sat all the way down, like on the ice level, folded his arms and was just like, yep, bring it on. Whatever you get, whatever you decide, I'm going to make my shot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he does have that attitude, right? He's, it's not, and it's not even arrogant. It's just like supreme confidence, right? That he's, he's like no shot. There's no shot that's too scary for him to take on. And you can just tell that like time and time again, he's just not uh, afraid of that. Uh, and he's also got like he's just got this visualization ability that kind of impresses me too. Like he can think through if it's times he's like that, you know, kind of talk them through it. But he's basically got this ability to say if we put it here in this exact spot, this leaves them only this or that. And he can kind of visualize out like three or four stones how setting a stone up is going to create that angle for him. Like he's a great. Great strategist, but also kind of great at visualizing the impact of, of rock positioning, which is, is one of those skills you, you really can't teach. It's something that someone almost has to have or not have in terms of if they're a visual thinker or not that, uh, that really impressed me about how he calls a game. All right. So Brad Jacobs, you know, they, had, they were just as dominant as Cooey was coming down the stretch, right? Well, right up until the stretch run. And then they finished with a loss to Ontario, a couple losses, and then a couple losses to Kevin Cooey. And they come up short. That's kind of been the story for this team recently, right? They they perform really well in the round robin ever since they won that Briar. And then they get to the playoffs and just 
whether it's bad luck or just a rare bad game from Brad Jacobs, they just can't get that second Briar Tankard. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think like after they won in 2014, it looked like they were going to set out to be like the next super dominant team. And it's not like they haven't been an elite team. They've certainly been top five like Canadian team for the last six years. But um, yeah, they, they can't seem to get that second Briar title. They, you know, they, they just haven't quite been able to, to win the big one again after winning it before. Uh, why that is, is kind of, you know, a bit of a mystery. It could, it could be, you know, that after you've accomplished whatever your big dream is, it's hard to, you've got to kind of almost find another big dream to kind of get motivated. And so maybe there's just something like missing from them having, they basically already won a briar, already won an Olympic gold medal. So maybe it's just kind of like a motivation factor. Yeah. You, you, you kind of have to wonder if that kind of plays in the back of their minds a bit. Right, but regardless of that, despite some off-ice distractions in the middle of the season, this team curled really well. They, they, they won the Canada Cup this year, albeit without Ryan Fry. But with Fry back in the lineup, it really didn't seem like it changed things. The, the whole team was off the charts uh, in terms of percentage and just rolled through teams at the beginning. But then... You know, it just it just didn't happen for them at the end. So I, I can't imagine. I imagine this team will stay together. Um, you know, as you said, we've we're, we're going to see some shakeup this off season, but there's no reason for this team not to stay together. They they seem closer to being they seem closer to being like that thirteen fourteen Jacobs team now than maybe the previous few years. Yeah, I mean they they were very dominant overstretch of the season. They're very dominant overstretch of the Briar week. So it's not as if they don't have it. There's just something they need to figure out to just kind of put a, to win that last game. Like literally that's, that's the only thing they haven't kind of figured out. So, uh, you know, they've brought in Adam Kingsbury. Uh, he did his magic with the Holman team over the last cycle. So, uh, Perhaps he's able to kind of work his magic once again, and whatever it is that's kind of holding them back from taking that last step is uh, is what it'll you know eventually they'll kind of get it unlocked and win a briar and perhaps even the Olympic trials at the end of this cycle. The team that Botcher beat in the Page Three Four game was Brad Gushu. He will return to the Newfoundland and Labrador tankard next year, which is bad news for the rest of Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, but, you know, this team had an extremely good tournament, obviously back-to-back Briar championships. Uh, I imagine this team's going to stay together, right? Yeah, there's they're not changing. That's a really strong team. Um, I mean, it, it, it's not as if the picked stone uh, cost them the game in the sense that they they couldn't have won without it. But that certainly was a massive momentum shift. Like there was a chance that Gushu could have got three off that shot, and instead he ends up giving up a steal of one. And they were definitely in the game the rest of the way until the wheels fell off in eight. But um, you know the Botcher team kind of was able to match them shot for shot from that point on. And in a certain sense, had a bit of an advantage. Uh, and so you know I think they're going to kind of come away from this week thinking that the pick stone kind of is what did them in. So a bit of bad luck rather than necessarily not quite being sharp enough 
And they certainly were kind of a dominant team for most of the week. Their, their only other big loss was against Cooey on like a last shot magic. So it's not as if they had a bad week. I think sometimes in these events, you also need to have the luck go with you. And this, this week, unfortunately, the curling gods weren't with them. So that more than anything else is what did them in. But uh, they're not going anywhere. They're definitely going to be around for the rest of the quad. I don't see any team shakeups coming from there. So here's a question, Jonathan. You said, you know, the four teams that made the playoffs, that you would be surprised if any of them aren't in the trials. So here's here's a question for you. So you've got Botcher, who's 27. He's kind of the up and coming. You know, he's the next one. Kevin Cooey's 44. Brad Goosh is 38 and Brad Jacobs is 33. Do you think any of those three wind up curling until they're 56 like Glenn Howard does? Or is this sport at the very top level become such a grind that maybe, you know, this quad possibly that, you know, it, at least this quad, is this quad the last one for any of these guys? And do any of them curl past the next quad? Stoughton curled till 50. <clears throat> I mean, I think with Skip, you can go a lot longer than you can front end. So I, it's a good question, right? I, I think it, well, there's a couple of questions. Like, A, what does retirement mean? Because I don't think curlers ever really retired until the game became professionalized. So it was someone in, I don't know, maybe you can kind of uh, give me the exact quote it's like from someone from basketball it was like some kind of mid-tier player and they asked them are you going to retire when are you going to retire from basketball and they said look like good players like Michael Jordan LeBron James they get to retire everybody else is retired as in like this basically one off season no team in the NBA wants to pick up your contract right and you're just told you're too old Good luck to you. I think, you know, old school curling, when it was, you you would curl to your 80, right? Because that's what you did. And then you'd either enter playdowns or not. Um, for what, what the demands for a team making a serious Olympic run are, are different. And so, like my hunch is Kevin Cooey, this is probably his last serious quadrennial run. He could probably do another one after that. Like he'd be 47, 48 at the start of the next one, kind of going into his 50s. He could probably get away with it if he wanted to. But my hunch is really the only thing he cares about is getting back to the Olympics and winning an Olympic medal, preferably a gold one. Like I think, the, I think, I actually think that had he won a gold medal, uh, in Pyeongchang, then he probably would have hung it up then. Like, there's a good chance he may have hung it up. I think that actually failing there was the motivation. Like, because what what else did he have to accomplish after that? Um, I think Gushu. I think Gushu is motivated by the same thing. I think he wants to become the first double gold medal winning skip, and so he's got at least two more solid quads in him. And the same thing is the motivation for Jacobs, right? That Jacobs already got one gold medal, but he wants that second gold medal, right? That that I think, if you get that, then you can say you're maybe better than Kevin Martin, right? Because Kevin Martin got to three Olympics and, you know, uh, got a gold and a silver. Uh, so I think that's kind of what motivates those guys. Obviously, Botcher's going nowhere. Like he'll, he's got another four, four quads in him for sure. Uh, in terms of when a skip's got to step away, it's an interesting question. Like, I think that an elite skip, as long as you're kind of in shape, um, the decision-making 
only gets better. Like we we know from kind of psychology that like mental peak is actually mid to late forties. So in terms of the strategy and skipping side, you're probably in an advantage to be in your forties compared to someone in their thirties or twenties. And you're probably a little bit more uh, steady hand, so to speak. Like, like from a sports psychology perspective, you're probably a lot harder to psych out than somebody in their twenties in a pressure shot. So there's, there are some advantages to being in your forties as a skip. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think if, if any of those four are going to kind of hang it up, it's going to be cooey after this quad, but the other three are fully going to be around for another quad after that. And then Jacobs is the youngest one. If Brad Jacobs curls until he's as old as Glenn Howard, it means that Brad Jacobs would be going after the 2042 Olympics. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he could he could do that. Right? I know it sounds crazy, but like if you look at somebody like Randy Furby, Randy Furby curled at an elite level until 50 and he was not in the best of shape, right? Like like <laughs> yes. everyone you've named is like in great shape, has an elite fitness program, takes care of their nutrition, is not smoking, is not drinking. Um, you know, like like that that gets you longevity too. Um, so yeah, I think, I think the big question is the desire, uh, you know, there are some elite curlers like, like, you know, John Morris and Mark Kennedy, they're sitting on the sidelines. Maybe they come back after this off season. Maybe they've decided they've, they've won all they want to win. Like, I think that's the, the deciding factor is not going to be, can they play at that elite level? Um, I think the deciding factor is basically a is their motivation, is there something else that I kind of want to accomplish out there that's going to let me, that's going to kind of motivate me to do all the grunt work that I have to do to play at that level? Because really, frankly, you got to be hitting the gym five, six times a week, and you've got to be going out and throwing 100 stones a day every day kind of thing. That, that, that's basically what it takes to be playing at that elite level. And to do that, you've got to find the drive. And if there's not something motivating you, uh, you're not going to want to do that work. And so... Uh, it's the motivation that's going to give way probably before the body. Like the, the, the other people we've seen step away, like Richard Hart, Wayne Madai, the body does break down. So that's the other issue, right? We saw a little bit of issue around Cooey's knee early in the season at the Continental Cup. So that could be kind of a bit of a question mark if he gets like knee arthritis or the cartilage goes or something like that. That could be a problem. Apparently, Mark Kennedy had some kind of sports hernia issue and had to have some surgery. Um, I remember Kevin Martin kind of had bad back and kind of sports hernia problems in his forties too. So the body does give out even in curling. So that's the other question, but barring injury, it's either it's a motivation or B, is there something else going on in your home life? Like, is it, you know, you've got kids, maybe you'd rather, you know, be a good parent than be the bad parent who's off, you know, 17 weekends a year and never sees your kids. Right. Or, um, you don't you don't know those personal kind of family factors also that matter too. That that's hard to tell from the outside looking in what where those priorities are, what the push pull is going on in the home front, and career factors matter too. I remember Amy Nixon when she stepped away, she say, said it was actually she had a fantastic career opportunity at work, um, but that career decision meant she couldn't be away curling. You know. 12 to 15 weekends a year. She had, you know, she just couldn't take that time off anymore if she wanted to, to accept that career opportunity. So uh, those things matter too. And really it's just, can you survive the grind? It's like, you know, 
college football coaches aren't coaching as long as the Bowdens and the Beamers coached in the past, just because the grind on recruiting and just every day has just worn a lot of a lot of guys out. So even in a lot of other sports, even the coaches are retiring earlier than they used to, just because it's it the the pressures are there. Yeah, and I think that's the case too with curling, right? Like it's not like if you go back thirty years. Like sure, the top curlers would practice a bit, but they're not practicing like they do now. They certainly didn't have gym habits or routines like they have now. And you know, maybe the the the, the, old, the old school approach was you just count how many games you played. So you want to be playing about 140 games by the time you get to the briar, right? Um, Modern curling teams, if you look at them, they're probably playing 60 to 80 games in the lead up to the briar, but they're all kind of high quality games, but they're doing a way more other stuff besides that. Also, the travel schedule is ridiculous. Like if you go back 30, 40 years, you just would hit the local bond spiel circuit. Maybe you do like one ambitious road trip a year, but otherwise you just kind of hit all the cash spiels in your local area, playing your club games, maybe playing a super league, et cetera. And then you kind of work your way up the pyramid and, and see if you got to the Briar final. Um, you know, these days, if you're an elite team, you're flying to Japan, you're flying to China, you're, you know, like even 10, 15 years ago, like a, a Japan or a China wasn't a normal stop for a tour team, right? And now it's, you're, you're probably playing three continents, 15 spiels, crossing time zones, all that stuff. That, that That's also a serious wear and tear on your body too. So I think all of that can kind of prompt you into to kind of considering taking a step back early as well. Uh, the other thing that might uh, come into play as far as these guys going after the 2042 Olympics is, uh, you know, once global warming makes it to where there's only three cities in the world that can host the Winter Olympics, maybe they'll just stop having it all together. I mean, that's, that's actually I mean, a joke. <laughs> I mean, global warming is not a joke, but there's actually a big issue about like the Olympics are in a bit of trouble. If you're like kind of looking at like the number of cities that'll bid um, for it, like they're they're getting down to kind of cases where I'm not even sure. Like, what's the is 2030 the next one that's got bidding open? Uh, yeah, there's like no team. There's like zero cities. Yeah, trying to bid on it. Zero cities trying and to no bid. One, no right? one wants it. No one wants it. It costs way more than you make. Uh, it's a it's a disaster. The security costs are through the roof. Um, the prestige benefits, you don't really get them anymore. So the Olympics themselves are facing their own set of problems too. So we, we, we don't know what the, the future holds for kind of the world sport community. All right. So moving on to some of the other teams in this tournament after going down that rabbit hole, uh, team, team McEwen Carruthers. Um, what the heck, man? You know, they look as disorganized as Team Cooey did in the 2015 Briar. Yeah. <laughs> so doesn't mean they're gonna doesn't mean that they're gonna be on the podium in Beijing in four in uh, three years time. But uh, that's a classic first year team dynamic issue going on there uh, in my mind. Is it? I mean, they're yeah. They were kind of snipping at each other at the end. I mean, they they won their last game, so they get they get to leave the briar on a high note. But man, they lost to UConn, man. And they they lost on an open hit. Like that's the <laughs> like I'm like all right, fine. 
I'm not, you know, if it's a, if it's a Kevin Cooey run triple slash thingy, I'm like, well, I can't make that. So I'm not going to laugh at being beaten by that or missing that. <laughs> the one against UConn, like wide open hit on championship ice with like two elite sweepers. I'm like, uh, I I don't get that miss. Sorry, like you yeah, it makes like a way better curler than me. But I'm like, I'm like, it, like to me, there, there's there's a, there's something going on there, team dynamic wise. I don't know. They look like you you see them, and obviously Instagram is you know not the real world, but like you see them hanging out and like they genuinely like each other. This whole team, but I don't know. I think it might. It, something is in Mike's head. Like, do they need to just hire Adam Kingsbury? Do they need to like outbid at uh, Brad Jacobs for Adam Kingsbury services? Like would that solve this? Uh, I mean, I think definitely they need to bring in some kind of coaching slash sports psychology. Like I, I don't quite know. I, and I think I, I think Mike McHugh has definitely talked in the media in the past about using sports psychologists. So I'm sure he's kind of drawn on that in the past. Uh, to me, it's maybe less a sports psychology issue and more a pecking order issue. Like, like it looks like Collins kind of sticking his note for a lead. He is way too yippy. <laughs> it's like so. To me, that tells me that um, like the team A doesn't trust each other, and B there's not a clear pecking order. Like I think switching back and forth between who's throwing last rocks and who's not, who's skipping, who isn't. Um, they've got to basically pick a, a throwing order and then distrust it and let it play out for a season. Like I, I think this switching the lineup every week. So it became a bit of a joke at the end about who's doing what. Um, but uh, I think that that kind of tells you that they're not really confident in the throwing order. And then that means they don't trust each other. And until that's addressed, uh, I don't see them kind of reaching their full potential. It's a, it's a team I root for. So I hope they figure it out. Cause I like Mike, I like Reed. I like all those guys. So hopefully, hopefully we can see them back in the prior playoffs. Um, yeah. regardless of who's on the team, uh, I mean, if, if there's any team that breaks up out of this, it could be them. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. Um, I, you know, it, it, I think that may be a bit sad because it means they never really gave it a full chance to play out. But I could see them saying we want to go a separate way. And, uh, you know, maybe Mike McEwen becomes the big free agent out there who uh, I don't know who he teams up with, but there's a lot of other kind of interesting curlers out there who might be looking to add somebody, but it may, it might be that, that uh, this is the end for them. And then my favorite team from the Briar was Scott McDonald, solid showing, you know, they lost their last two games, but they, you know, they were six and three at one point until they lost to Brendan Botcher, that kind of, that basic, that eliminated them from, from contention for the playoffs. But man, this team played unafraid and they played their style the whole week. And I, I fell in love with this team. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's a great run and it's, I mean, for Scott McDonald has got touch, like he can just put it where it needs to go. And uh, if you have your skip with touch like that, you're always going to have a chance to win. So uh, that, that's, that's a team that I think's, going to be putting on a run this cycle, right? Like I think they're they're probably the first good surprise of this 
of this quad, I'd say. Like, we were, you know, we were, like, like Scott McDonald was certainly not on my radar, I guess, until they qualified for a slam. But um, it, it's good to see that competitive teams that kind of put in the work are still able to punch through in this kind of current environment. That it's not simply the kind of preordained playing playing in the slam cycle every week, having a shot. That it's good to see a team that kind of goes out on spiels, goes on the cash circuit earns their points, does all the right things, can kind of make it to the briar, get enough points, and they'll definitely be qualifying for more slams now. So it'll be good to see how much they can progress over the next couple of years. And then your feel-good story, John Solberg and Team UConn, uh, they beat the McCruthers team. They nearly had a Cinderella run to the championship pool. I think they were alive until uh, losing in the the final draw of the early stage of the round robin. But yeah, that was, you know, the... Jamie Cooey's the team that comes out of the territories and is always a threat to make the championship pool. But this year it was the other territory, uh, UConn territory and John Salberg who did that. Yeah, and it's good to see. I think I think that's one of the the appeals of this new format is probably under the old format, the Salberg team, you know, goes five and six or something, right? And uh like people be oh, it seems like an all right showing, et cetera, but it doesn't really feel like much. With this new format, like some of these teams have can kind of feel like they've accomplished something by making the championship pool. And so that that was kind of good to to see a team like that put on a good run. And I think that makes this new format a lot more compelling. I'm sure we'll see other examples of that and cases of kind of Yukon or Territory or Nunavut type teams making the championship pool uh, happening in the future. All right. Well, Jonathan, we've talked way too long about the Scotties and Briar. We need to get to the worlds, but uh, we've we've talked enough that I think that we should split this into a couple of episodes. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, end this one. And if you look uh, later this week, I'll upload our worlds preview. Uh, but all uh, for now, if you want to get in touch with us, you can follow us on Twitter at Curling Podcast, and you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and please uh, leave a review. We'd love to see those. Uh, we also love it when you, you tell your friends about the podcast. So we'll see you again later this week with our world's previews. <laughs>